Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. Of course, as the announcer said, if you would like to get on the air, give us a call at 877-655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877-655-6755. Looks like we already have a call. Let's go ahead and take that. Jim from Iowa, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Okay, first, I need to listen to your answer on the telephone, if that's okay. And uh, the question is, the Bible says that uh, when you go to have church, it says to eat at home. Uh, does that apply? says that. Does that apply today? Of course, it does. Okay, why did if it say man hunger, let him eat at home. And why did they... Uh, what were they doing back then to to make that verse in there? Well, the problem is, the thing is, the only thing we're supposed to eat when we come together for the church service is the Lord's Supper. That's what First okay. Corinthians 11 is talking about, the Lord's Supper. But evidently, okay. people were coming to satisfy hunger. The Lord's Supper is not intended to satisfy our hunger, Jim. It's just, you okay. might say it's a ceremony. You eat a little piece of bread to represent his broken body. You drink a little bit of grape juice or fruit of the vine to represent his blood. It's not intended to be like a common meal where you're there to to satisfy hunger. If it says, so if you're hungry, eat at home. You don't come to church to eat. Okay, I heard a preacher say that the people back then were making it into a big fancy feast, and that's why that verse is in there, but that's not true, is it? Well, we we shouldn't turn it into a feast. We should not eat in the church service. To satisfy hunger. The church service is supposed to be about things spiritual, not about oh, so, fun, food, and frolic. Okay? So if it was, if it's just an ordinary dinner or a fancy meal, they're both wrong. Either way, you're not supposed to eat a okay. meal to satisfy hunger in the church service. If any man is hungry, let him eat at home. The only meal we're supposed to eat in the church service is the Lord's Supper, and that's not done to satisfy our hunger. It's done to remember the Lord's death. Okay, how about the churches that say, stay after the church and then eat? Is that That's wrong too, isn't it? So that gets into Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is it authorized for the church to spend its money, the money they collect on the first day of the week, for fun, food, and frolic, or is the church only authorized to spend its money to help needy saints, 1 Timothy 5, 16, or okay, how about- to support the preaching of the gospel, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. But So just to spend our money on fun, food, and frolic, that's not the point of the church. Even if you, if you brought your own food and stuff, it's still wrong, isn't it? <laughs> it just depends on who owns the building that you're eating on out of. If somebody was meeting at home at somebody's house, they could eat it. You can eat at home, but you, yeah. if you church, if the church at the facilities are owned by the church, you shouldn't use the church for fun, okay. food and frolic. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. While we're waiting on another call, I thought we'd talk about the Calvinist version of election or predestination. You know, the Bible does talk about election or predestination. 
but it doesn't teach the Calvinist version of that. The website for a Baptist-type church in my area says the following, following about what they believe. Here's a quote. This is from their website. The salvation of humanity is fundamentally the work of God. Before the foundation of the world, God elected his people, setting his affection and grace upon them. In love, God predestinated his people for adoption. Faith is a gift of grace that is given by the mercy and pleasure of God so that no one may boast. Apart from the intervention of God, humanity cannot choose of his own accord to worship God and pursue righteousness. God's sovereignty in salvation is comprehensive. From first to last, all of salvation is the work of the Lord. Now, normally when people say what this quote says, quote, before the foundation of the world, God elected his people, they mean the Calvinist view of predestination, that God has decided from the foundation of the world the names of who will be saved, as opposed to the character of who will be saved. Now, the Bible does teach that God has decided from the foundation of the world who would be saved, but not the names, the character. He says, this is the character of, of, of who's going to be saved. That doesn't mean that Pat or Jim, either one of them, are automatically accepted or rejected. Anybody who chooses to have that character can be saved. The names are not chosen, but the character is chosen. That's what the Bible teaches about election and predestination. So the Calvinists are teaching that the names are chosen before the foundation of the world, so we don't have any choice in the matter, which is called, in the Calvinist viewpoint, unconditional election. And they say then that Jesus only died for those thus chosen. And they call that the limited atonement. But again, the Bible does not talk about this kind of predestination. Now, the Bible does talk about predestination, but it's talking about how God chose the type of character of who would be saved, not the names. So that anybody who decides to have this godly character will be saved, anybody. Let me illustrate. In Judges 7, 4 through 7, God elected those who would go into battle, and it turns out to be 300. God elected those who would go into battle with Gideon conditionally. Based upon who drank water by putting their hand to their mouth as opposed to those who got down on their knees to drink. So God chose or elected his soldiers based upon something they decided to do, based upon something they did. Did God choose these 300 soldiers? Yes. Did he elect them? Yes. But it was it arbitrarily? Did he choose them arbitrarily for no reason at all? No, he chose them based upon how they drank the water from the lake or the stream or whatever. So it was he chose them, but it was based upon something they decided to do. And it's the same way with how God chooses or elects who will be a Christian. He chooses us, yes, but not by name. He chooses us based upon what something we do. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. So he chooses who will be saved, not by name, but, but by who decides to believe and be, and be baptized. If you have a Bible question or comment, please call us at 877 655-6755. So our decision has to be involved in this election because God commands in 2 Peter 1 verse 10 
to make your calling and election sure. How could we make our election sure if we have nothing whatever to do with our election? Nothing whatever to do with God, God's choosing of who would be saved. The Calvinist says God elects us based upon nothing we do. It has nothing whatever with any decision upon us. So our free will is taken away from us. God forces us like robots to either be elected or not be an elect. But this verse says, make your calling an election sure. So that proves conclusively, and I don't use this word conclusively lightly. It proves conclusively for sure that the Calvinist version of election and predestination is false because their version of election and predestination means you can't make any change to whether or not you're elected or not. But this verse says to make your calling and election sure, which shows you have a lot to do with whether or not you're chosen or elected by God. From the foundation of the world, then, God chose the kind of person that will be saved. Not the names, but the kind of person that will be saved. Anybody who's willing to serve God will be saved. What's the choice he made? Anybody that's willing to submit to him and his will will be saved. That's the choice he made. That's what's being predestinated. That leaves us all with our free will. We can choose to serve God and be saved, or we can choose not to serve God and not be saved. My daughter and I were talking the other day, and she called this Calvinism doctrine abhorrent. She is so right. According to Calvinism, not only are certain ones picked for heaven, not really having a choice, because according to them, faith is forced upon us. That's what they mean by faith is a gift of grace that is given by the mercy and pleasure of God, which is a misunderstanding of the grammar of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. They basically believe you don't even have a choice about whether or not to have faith. God forces it upon you. But here's the thing that's so abhorrent. Others are destinated for everlasting punishment with no chance to change that definition, no matter how much they want to serve God, because Jesus didn't die for them in the first place. Let me say that again. Calvinism means if God didn't choose your name before the foundation of the world, then Jesus didn't die for you, and therefore it doesn't matter how much you trust and obey Christ. You are going to burn with the devil forever. You can't help it. You can't change anything. Before the foundation of the world, if your name is Fred, God chose Fred and said, you're going to burn forever with the devil. That's an important doctrine. It's a truly important doctrine. That's what Calvinism teaches, that Jesus didn't die for some, and those, therefore those people can't be saved no matter how much they want to serve the Lord. If you have a Bible question about Calvinism or any other Bible topic, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. Here's some verses. First of all, against the limited atonement. And then we'll give some verses against unconditional election. Here's some verses that prove this limited atonement theory. It's false. What is the limited atonement? That Jesus only died for some, what they call the elect. He didn't die for everybody. Here's some verses that prove that's wrong. First Hebrews 2, 9. It says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, let's throw aside all our prejudices, everything that we've ever believed in the past, and let this verse answer the question. Did Jesus die for just some people, or did he die for all? This says that by the grace of God, he should taste death for every man. That's clear. Only somebody who's already started out with a preconceived 
position that Jesus only died for some could ever even think about believing something different than this verse clearly teaches that Jesus tasted death for every man. How can every man only mean some of the men? It can't, can it? Unless you're just trying to change the Bible. You want to believe what you want to believe, which is Calvinism. So you'll do anything you can to get around what the scriptures say. And you want to believe Calvinism, possibly because Calvinism teaches once saved, always saved. And that makes it so convenient. People can just live any old way they want to and still be saved. I think that's what's driving this. I want to be saved, but I want to keep living in sin. And Calvinism enables that. First Timothy 4 verse 10. How about this? God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Hmm. Especially those that believe. Sounds like Jesus is the Savior of everybody, especially of those that believe, meaning he's also the Savior of those that don't believe. Many also died for those that don't believe. Doesn't it sound like that to you? It does to me. If he's the Savior for all men, especially those that believe, that would mean, the especially part, would mean he's the Savior of even those who don't believe. That doesn't mean they're they're going to be saved. That means that Jesus died for all men. Especially of those that believe would mean the ones that believe are the ones that take advantage of that. But Jesus died for even those that don't believe. That's pretty clear. The same thing we see in 1 John 2, too. It says, talking about Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus died. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, not for just the Christians. He says not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, not just the Christians, but everybody. Jesus died for everybody. He died for every single atheist out there. The atheist, though, doesn't take advantage of his death. Jesus buys the ticket for everybody with his death. But most people don't choose to go to the game, even though they had to have a ticket bought for them. They choose to ignore the death of Christ, go to the bad place, when they could accept the benefits of the death of Christ and be saved forever. If you have a Bible question or comment, please call us at 877-655-6755. Bible question or comment, 877-655-6755. The lines are wide open. And then 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Who, talking about Christ Jesus, gave himself a ransom for all. He didn't just die for some. He gave himself a ransom for all. These verses conclusively prove this limited atonement theory is false. This theory that Jesus only died for the elect Therefore, the ones he didn't die for can't be saved no matter how dedicated they are to serving the Lord. It is completely false according to the Bible. This Calvinism doctrine is something born by the imagination of man. The Bible doesn't come anywhere close to teaching it. Now, so those are passages that prove this limited atonement theory is false. This idea that Jesus only died for some people, not for everybody, is false. Jesus tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2.9. Here are some passages that teach that another point of Calvinism, unconditional election, that's their version of predestination, that people are deciding before the foundation of the world who the names of the saved people will be. So it can't be conditional. If John is going to be saved no matter what, and Joe's not going to be saved no matter what, then salvation, of course, can't be conditional. 
John's going to be saved no matter what he does. There's no conditions. But we have the most famous verse in the Bible that proves this wrong. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's so simple. And if it teaches anything, it teaches salvation is condition. Condition upon us believing. God died, sent his son to die for everybody. He loved the world. He died for everybody in the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is so clear. Salvation is conditioned upon us believing. It's not unconditional. So the Calvinist version, their version of predestination is false to the core. Joel from Tennessee, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Joel, you're on the air. Can you hear me? Yes, I was wondering uh, what the, the New Testament teaches when a person receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter told some believers in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. And so when a person, a believer, repents and is baptized, not only does he receive the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins, he receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Does that answer your question, Joel? Uh, a little bit, but... See, I see different times in the book of Acts. At one point, they received the Holy Spirit before baptism. And one time, none of them received it. And the apostle Paul asked them in Acts chapter 19, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Mm -hmm. So he was assuming they had already been baptized. Yeah, so so that that's explained by the fact, Joel, there's two different measures John 3.34 says Jesus received the Spirit without measure. There's at least two different measures of the Holy Spirit. There's the earnest measure talked about in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It's, it's given us as the earnest of our salvation. It's only given when we obey the gospel, Acts 2.38. We repent and we're baptized, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit, Joel, that's a different measure. It can be given before baptism, as in the case of Cornelius. The people in Acts, uh, Acts 8, they had been baptized, but they hadn't received the, they, so they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit according to Acts 2.38. They'd received that in Acts 8, but then the apostles had to be called down, the two apostles, Peter and John, to lay hands on them in Acts chapter 8 so they could receive the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. So that proves two different measures. They had received one measure when they were baptized, Acts 2.38, and then they received the miraculous measure later when Peter and John laid their hands on them in Acts chapter 8. Is that what you referred to, Joel, about laying the hands on them, receiving the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, just at the different times. And when, Jesus, when Jesus breathed on them before he ascended to heaven, would that be a measure of, a measure of the Holy Spirit? And then on the day of Pentecost, they received the, the miraculous gift. You know, I'm not 100% sure right now what that's talking about when he breathed on them, but they says he breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. Did they receive it right then, or is he talking about them receiving it in Acts 2? They definitely received the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They spoke in tongues. That was the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit they received in Acts 2. That's not the measure of the Spirit that's being promised in Acts 2.38. That measure of the Holy Spirit is conditioned upon baptism. 
But the miraculous measure of this Holy Spirit, just as you pointed out, can come before baptism, as in the case of Cornelius and his household in Acts 10. It's got to be two different measures because one measure is conditioned upon baptism, Acts 2.38. One came before baptism in Acts 10. Go ahead, Joel. All right. That, that answers my question. Just curious. Thank you, Joel, for your call. So we're talking about this thing that the Calvinists teach normally called unconditional election. It's their version of predestination. They believe that people's people are predestined to be saved, meaning their names, so that nobody has a choice about whether or not they can be saved or not. Now, the Bible talks about predestination, but it's not talking about predestinating who or who is not going to be saved based upon names, but it's talking about who's going to be saved based upon character so that people who trust and obey Christ can be saved no matter who that is. So 2 Peter 3, 9 shows that unconditional election is false. Unconditional election is the name for the Calvinist view of predestination. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yeah, so look, what's the condition there of salvation? Repentance. If you want to avoid perishing, there's a condition. You have to repent. The Calvinist says salvation is unconditional, but this says if you want to avoid perishing, you have to repent. So obviously salvation is conditional. How about Hebrews 5, 9? He, talking about Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Salvation is conditioned upon obedience. The Calvinist says no, salvation is unconditional. The Bible teaches over and over and over again that salvation is conditioned both based upon our belief, John 3, 16, and our obedience, Hebrews 5, 9. And then we already read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Obviously, our election, our predestination, our salvation is conditional because it's up to us to make our calling and election sure. And if the Calvinist view of predestination and election is true, this verse is completely false. This verse conclusively proves the Calvinist version of election is false, that God elects people total in a total arbitrary way, not based upon anything they do. But this shows that we can make our calling and election sure, so it does have something to do with what we do. And then Mark 16, 16, we've already mentioned, Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So our salvation, again, is conditioned upon believing and obeying, believing and baptism. Those are two conditions we have to meet in order to be saved. So the Calvinist view that salvation is unconditional is proven false by a simple verse like Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It states two conditions of salvation. How about Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? It says, if my people shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins. So our forgiveness is not unconditional. No, our forgiveness is conditional. You see the big word, little word, if? If we'll humble ourselves and pray and seek God's faith and turn from our wicked ways, then God will forgive our sins. So forgiveness is conditional. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. Those who teach this false version of election always say salvation is by faith alone. 
But that directly contradicts James 2.24, which says we're not saved by faith only. It says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So the Calvinists say we're saved by faith only. James 2.24 says it's not by faith only. We can see that from other passages. Matthew 7.21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So only those who do the will of the Father in heaven will be saved. It's not faith only. You have to do the will of the Father. And we've already read Hebrews 5, 9 that teaches Jesus is the author or the source of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So salvation is not by faith only. You have to obey Jesus to be saved. If you would like to have a free one-hour phone Bible study with me, sometime at your convenience, I want you to call or text me on my cell phone, 256-682-9753. Free one-hour phone Bible study with me sometime at your convenience. Call or text me, 256-682-9753.